Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. This is the show where we take some of our favorite documentaries and TV shows from our channel and turn them into podcasts that you can listen to whenever you want. Last week, we explored the mystery of King Cambyses' lost army, the 50,000 Persian men who disappeared in the desert. If you missed it, just head to our feed to catch up. This week, we were planning to look into the Man of Steel, Joseph Stalin. But in the current circumstances, it seems more suitable to take a deep dive into the complex life of a U.S. president. So we've decided instead to explore the ups and downs of President Nixon, whose presidency also resulted in an impeachment investigation. The show explores the successes and intrigue of Nixon's presidency, which was largely ran from his hideaway office across the road from the White House, also known as his den. The voice of this episode is Professor David Reynolds. He was one of America's most successful presidents on the international stage, lauded as a world statesman who thawed the Cold War. He was re-elected in one of the biggest landslides in American history, capturing 49 out of 50 states. Yet Richard Nixon was also the only president to resign from office, forced out of the White House in abject disgrace. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Who was the real Nixon? The visionary statesman or the sordid crook? I believe that's a false distinction. Nixon was both Jekyll and Hyde, a bizarre mixture of near greatness and incorrigible pettiness that left an enduring mark on history and makes him such an intriguing figure. This is the story of a man who remained a perpetual outsider, even though he rose to the very peak of power as President of the United States. With the help of rare behind-the-scenes footage and his taped conversations, this film explores Nixon's tragedy, how the traits of personality that propelled him to the top also destroyed his administration. Nixon's presidency, more than any other, shows us how the demands of the most powerful, most public job in the world strip bare the character of a human being. Here, in a space evocative of Nixon's den, his hideaway office, is an intimate portrait of a most unintimate leader. A president alone with his visions and 
his demons. On the night of the 30th of July, 1974, Richard Nixon could not sleep. Mired in scandal, his presidency was in terminal crisis. In the early hours of the morning, he took out his notepad and methodically listed the reasons why he should resign, for the good of his Republican Party and his country. Yet Nixon kept returning to his gut instinct that he had never been a quitter, and resignation would be taken as a confession of guilt. As dawn came up, Nixon had been scribbling for three hours. Finally, he turned over his sheaf of papers and wrote on the back, end career as fighter. Richard Nixon had always been a fighter. To understand how this man became the most embattled president in history, we need to go back to the struggles of his early life, the struggles that shaped him. His father, Frank, a small town grocer in California, was a violent bully. His mother, Hannah, was a devoted Quaker and homemaker. Yet the young Richard drew no real warmth from her. There were few hugs or kisses. Much of Hannah's energy was expended on his sickly brothers, Arthur and Harold, who died of tuberculosis. Richard grew up insecure, withdrawn and emotionally bottled up. Yet these trials of youth spurred a fierce ambition. At school, Nixon was an ace student and strove for fame on the football field. But popularity eluded him. Dick seemed tense and solitary, always desperate for fulfillment, never able to enjoy his success. Some presidents exult in the trappings of power. Lyndon Johnson, Nixon's predecessor, started life as a schoolteacher in dirt-poor eastern Texas, and he loved to flaunt his status as president. On one occasion, he walked across the White House lawn to the wrong helicopter, and an aide rushed forward. Mr. President, Mr. President, that's your helicopter, sir, over there. Johnson turned round. Son, all of them are my helicopters. Unlike Johnson, when Nixon became president, he didn't set up court in the grand oval office of the White House. Nixon liked to work in a far less ostentatious hideaway in the old executive office building, a few hundred yards from the White House. The den was Nixon's natural milieu. Socially awkward, he shunned cocktail parties and business breakfasts. The den also shielded him from debate and discussion. Nixon liked to take decisions in private after reviewing memos and documents, rather than through the cut and thrust of face-to-face -face argument. This was a president who wanted to rule the world on paper. But a detached, loner president who secluded himself so much from bureaucrats and politicians, press and public, was particularly reliant on a few key intermediaries to do his will. His right-hand men were domestic advisor John Ehrlichman and chief of staff Bob Haldeman, known unaffectionately as the Prussians. In foreign affairs, Nixon's main interest, the man who mattered was the national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Up close, 
Kissinger caught something of the essence of his boss. He didn't enjoy people. What I never understood was why he went into politics. Isolation had become almost a spiritual necessity to this withdrawn, tormented man. Nixon himself admitted, I'm an introvert in an extrovert profession. Not enjoying human company is a bit of a handicap for a politician. But Nixon had always compensated for his lack of personal skills by a formidable capacity for hard work. Hard work had been Nixon's way out of his impoverished small-town background. From his modest local college in Whittier, Southern California, top grades won him a scholarship at Duke University, one of the best law schools in the country. This should have been a huge boost to his self-confidence, but Nixon never let up. His grim determination earned him the nickname Gloomy Gus. One fellow student recalled, A very studious individual, almost fearfully so. I can see him in the law library, hunched over a book, seldom even looking up. He never smiled. Even on Saturday nights, he was in the library, studying. But there was a loftier side to Nixon's workaholic personality. He devoured history books and was deeply moved by the lives of world leaders such as Woodrow Wilson and Winston Churchill. One of his cherished possessions was a portrait of Abraham Lincoln, a present on his 13th birthday from his grandma, under which she had inscribed lines from the poet Longfellow. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Nixon was determined to leave his footprints on the sands of time. He saw himself as almost a philosopher president, envisioning the grand strategy while his minions sorted out the details. And in 1969, he came to office with a genuinely grand aim, to thaw the Cold War and reshape world politics. Since the Second World War, the superpower standoff between democratic West and communist East created the constant threat of all-out nuclear war. Tensions peaked in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which left Americans with a new sense of vulnerability and the whole world teetering on the brink of Armageddon. Nixon developed a plan to end the global standoff. To do this required detente, a relaxation of tension with Russia. But more than that, Nixon believed it essential to forge a new relationship with communist China. Since the communist takeover in 1949, the United States had refused to recognize Red China. In the 1960s, the xenophobic frenzy of Mao's cultural revolution gave further reason to shun the Asian giant. But although a right-wing Republican, Nixon swam against the tide. He believed that an opening to China was now vital. We simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates, and threaten its neighbors. Nixon's goal was to pull China back into the international community because, he argued, the world cannot be safe until China changes. The boldness of Nixon's scheme shouldn't be underestimated. 
China was a total pariah. The equivalent today would be a Western leader calling for direct talks with Al-Qaeda. Nixon would act on this idea during his very first 24 hours in the White House, scribbling... Chinese communists. Short range, no change. Long range, we do not want 800 million living in angry isolation. We want contact. Here was the visionary side of Nixon, an American outsider reaching out to the world's outsiders. And what makes his initiative even more striking is that so far Nixon had forged his whole political identity as a vehement anti-communist. Capitalising as a young politician on the Cold War panic of the 1940s, Nixon relentlessly depicted his opponents as crypto-communists. Running for the Senate in 1950, he smeared his rival, Helen Gahagan Douglas, as pink right down to her underwear. When in a political fight, Nixon showed little sense of restraint. He simply went for the jugular. Nixon had learnt the value of dirty tactics. He won by a landslide, but Douglas's parting barb stuck. She coined the nickname Tricky Dicky. Seething resentment drove Nixon's political ruthlessness. His impoverished youth had left him with a deep grudge against America's privileged elite. What starts the process really are laughs and slights and snobs when you were a kid. But if you are reasonably intelligent, and if your anger is deep enough and strong enough, you learn that you can change those attitudes by excellence, personal gut performance, while those who have everything are sitting on their fat butts. Nixon's loathing was reserved particularly for the East Coast establishment. The diffusion within the United States of subversive and un-American propaganda. In fact, he made his political name in the hearings that fingered top State Department diplomat Alger Hiss as a probable Soviet agent. Nixon's hatred of elite figures came from the gut. Hiss told Nixon grandly, I graduated from Harvard. I heard your school was wittier. Snubs like that made Nixon determined to nail Hiss. Nixon's combination of commie bashing and populist politics catapulted him into the vice presidency. After eight years playing understudy to Eisenhower, Nixon then ran for the presidency itself in 1960. But his opponent was another product of Harvard, John F. Kennedy, whose father had the money and the determination to get his son into the White House. Nixon then stood for the governorship of California, was defeated again, and conceded with a bitter speech aimed at the liberal media that he believed had shafted him. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Nixon was simply regrouping for a new assault on the inner circle of power. The underdog was still determined to come out. The comeback was a typical mix of ruthlessness, underhand manoeuvres and hard work. Nixon won vital political allies campaigning for Republican candidates for Congress. 
And as America became polarized between right and left in the angry 60s, he positioned himself as a spokesman for what he called the silent majority of law-abiding Americans. So Nixon was ideally placed to exploit the country's deepening crisis in Vietnam. Launched by President Kennedy and fired up into a costly full-scale conflict by Lyndon Johnson, the Vietnam War had gone disastrously wrong. Americans were dying at the rate of 200 a week. With his political opponents on their knees, Nixon seized his opportunity. When the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for four years in war in Vietnam without the end in sight, when a nation with the greatest tradition of rule of law is torn apart by unprecedented lawlessness, it's time for new leadership in the United States of America. Running for the presidency once again in 1968, Nixon projected a new image, a dignified statesman, the unifier of his country. No doubt this was the kind of leader that Nixon aspired to be. But behind the scenes, the reality was rather different. Ever the anxious political outsider, Nixon instructed his staff to treat the campaign as what he called all-out war. In this war, no blow was too low. Publicly, Nixon talked peace in Vietnam. But behind the scenes, he arm-twisted South Vietnam to withdraw from President Johnson's peace talks. To win the election, he was prepared to undermine his opponent's bid to end the war. This time, his Machiavellian tactics worked. Nixon won. The outsider became the ultimate insider. Now Nixon had the chance to craft world peace on his own terms leaving indelible footprints on the sands of time. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America, the chance to help lead the world at last out of the valley of turmoil. As president, Nixon's grand strategy was a new set of relations with Russia and China. But first, he had to resolve Vietnam. He was determined not to let his presidency, like Johnson's, be crippled by the war. So Nixon and his national security adviser, Henry Kissinger, plotted America's exit strategy. The president's double act with Kissinger became one of the most extraordinary political relationships of the 20th century. It would fuel Nixon's rise, but also his fall. Nixon and Kissinger were sure that secrecy was the key to success in negotiating an end to the Vietnam War, to avoid leaks and press comment that could smother their diplomacy before it had time to flourish. So Kissinger created a confidential back channel to the Kremlin and engineered secret talks with the Vietnamese. While Kissinger talked, Nixon acted with the same ruthlessness that had won him the presidency. Now he could do so with the full might of America's power. He aimed to bludgeon the communists to the negotiating table by round-the-clock bombing of Viet Cong sanctuaries in Cambodia. Let them know he didn't play by normal rules. He told his chief of staff, I call it the madman theory, Bob. I want the North Vietnamese to believe I've reached the point where I might do anything to stop the war. We'll just slip the word to them that 
For God's sake, you know Nixon is obsessed about communism. We can't restrain him when he's angry, and he has his hand on the nuclear button. And Ho Chi Minh will be in Paris in two days, begging for peace. But the quick fix didn't work. Madman tactics failed to end the war as Nixon had hoped. In fact, his saturation bombing provoked a backlash at home, fueling mounting public protest and press criticism. Nixon saw enemies on every side, encircling him. But I think he almost needed to be hated. That way he knew he was right. There was a kind of self-righteous masochism here, as well as paranoia. As the Vietnam War dragged on, Nixon's paranoia about his enemies at home intensified. Raging about newspaper exposés of government policy, he even created a breaking and entering team to catch the perpetrators and plug the leaks. They were known as the plumbers. Nixon's den, which he'd conceived of as a command post, was beginning to feel like a bunker. The president was exhausted and drinking heavily. In May 1970, thousands of anti-war demonstrators converged on Washington. Nixon felt besieged. Unable to sleep, he put on a record of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Yet over the music, all he could hear were the protesters gathering on the mall. Nixon suddenly flipped. Desperate to break out of the den, he summoned his driver. They drove down to the Lincoln Memorial, where, in the early light, he confronted some of the protesters. They were utterly astonished to encounter the president and to hear rambling recollections about his own idealism at their age. He talked of Neville Chamberlain coming back from Munich, proclaiming peace for our time. I said I thought at that time that Chamberlain was the greatest man alive. And when I read Churchill's all-out criticism of Chamberlain, I thought Churchill was a madman. In retrospect, I now realize Chamberlain was a good man, but that Churchill was a wiser man. May 1970 was Nixon at his worst, lurching drunkenly between defiance and self-pity, a foretaste of things to come. But this man was a fighter, out of the wilderness, like Churchill. He crafted a triumph, finally accomplishing his grand design. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes, where we're just learning about how Nixon struggled to achieve peace in Vietnam and what role diplomacy played in the end. Military might alone was clearly not going to end the war in Vietnam, so Nixon resorted to cold, calculating diplomacy. Better relations with Russia and China were his long-term goal, but now he also seized on this as a way to put the screws on North Vietnam by persuading Moscow and Beijing to cut off weapons and supplies. His tactic was to make use of the growing rift between North Vietnam's two communist patrons. The Soviets were obsessed by China's growing military strength and soaring population, already triple that of Russia's. Russian fears about the Chinese threat were captured in one Moscow joke, which imagined a phone conversation between Nixon and the Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. I hear you have new supercomputer with massive predictive. That's right. Yes, indeed. So, Mr. President, please ask your supercomputer to predict names of Soviet Politburo here in 2000. A long silence ensues. Finally, Brezhnev crows down the phone. So, Mr. President, your supercomputer not so super after all. Oh no, Mr. General Secretary, the, uh, the names came up all right. It's just that I can't read Chinese. How best to exploit the split between the two communist giants appealed to the grand strategist in Nixon. If Washington thawed relations with Beijing, he reckoned, that would alarm Moscow and make it cozy up to America. And the price he would exact for these new, improved relationships would be an end to both Moscow and Beijing's support for North Vietnam. Nixon saw all this as a kind of global chess game, which, move by move, would get him the peace settlement he wanted and needed to gain re-election in 1972. He told Kissinger, we're doing the China thing to screw the Russians and help us in Vietnam, and maybe down the road to have some relations with China. Nixon saw Kissinger as his most powerful piece, his queen, if you like, in this game of chess. After covert contacts via Pakistan, in July 1971, Kissinger flew in secrecy over the Himalayas and into the forbidden city of Beijing. Nixon could only wait impatiently. But on the 11th of July, he received the message he wanted. Kissinger had secured China's agreement in principle that the president would visit Beijing. For Nixon, this would put pressure on North Vietnam 
and advance his great goal of global detente. Nixon was beside himself with delight. He scribbled a message of congratulation to Kissinger. When you return, I plan to give you a day off in compensation for your superb service to the nation. Reading this nowadays, you'd think it was a joke. But Nixon didn't do irony, just hard work. Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The opening to China was a stunning public relations coup, which took the world by storm. The problem for Nixon was that Kissinger gained much of the credit, turning him almost overnight into an international celebrity, depicted as the shrewd helmsman who was piloting Nixon on a dramatic voyage into the unknown. Nixon needed Kissinger as the backroom dealmaker, but he hated letting his advisor into the limelight. Nixon's pioneering visit to China eventually took place in February 1972, carefully scheduled for primetime TV back home. Just to be sure that Kissinger did not muscle in on the photo opportunity of Nixon's grand arrival, Burley Secret Service aides blocked the aisle of Air Force One as the president and his wife walked down the steps and into history. The visit was a triumph of public relations, and it could only have been achieved by a notorious right-winger who couldn't be criticised for being soft on communism. Just as Nixon had hoped, his China visit loosened the Cold War deadlock with Moscow. The Soviets' great fear was being isolated if their old enemy America and their new foe China started becoming friendly. So Moscow hurriedly invited Kissinger to discussions in the Kremlin. Nixon wanted concessions on Vietnam before he would meet with Brezhnev. But Kissinger regarded a summit between the two leaders as the priority and forged ahead on his own. Back in Washington, Nixon fumed impotently that Henry was simply breastfeeding the Soviets. Tell him no discussions of the summit before they settle Vietnam, and that is an order. Kissinger got equally angry. If the president does not trust me, there is not much that can be done. The struggle for the limelight was becoming a struggle for power. On Kissinger's return, according to the diary of Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, The president was all primed to really whack Henry, but backed off when he actually got there. This was typical Nixon. Although a tough talker in private, he loathed face-to-face -face confrontation. But the appeasement was costly. Kissinger had set up a summit in Moscow essentially on his terms. The messenger was becoming the master. In May 1972, Nixon touched down in Moscow. He had prepared for the summit by watching the James Bond classic from Russia with love. And he was welcome, if not with love, at least with champagne. Unlike Beijing, there was substance here as well as symbolism. He signed a series of agreements with the Soviets, above all on arms control. So in three dramatic months in 1972, Nixon had overturned a quarter century of Cold War history, becoming the first US president to visit the two capitals of communism.
Just 10 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when nuclear war seemed inevitable, Nixon's policy of detente, relaxing superpower tension, offered hope for an end to the Vietnam War and the prospect of a new, more peaceful world. The global chess game paid off. In 1972, Nixon won a landslide victory, being re-elected with 60% of the popular vote. But his obsessive suspicion was now corroding his judgment. More and more, the president's wary eye turned on his right-hand man. Nixon was still angry that Kissinger was getting the credit for the diplomatic triumphs of 1972. What's more, his adviser, it seemed, was openly trumpeting his success. I've always acted alone. Americans admire that enormously. Americans admire the cowboy entering a village or city all alone on his horse. This romantic, surprising character suits me because being alone has always been part of my style. A Wild West tale, if you like. The tubby, bespectacled Kissinger as a Lone Ranger-style Wild West hero sounded preposterous to most people, but Nixon took it very seriously. He liked to think of himself as a Lone Ranger figure, with Kissinger playing Tonto. I don't stand on protocol. If you'll just call me Excellency, we'll be getting <laughs> Clearly, his national security advisers saw their roles as being reversed. Resentful, Nixon started to tape their meetings and calls. In due course, it would prove a fatal mistake. Mr. President, I have Dr. Kissinger calling you now. Fine. Thank you. Hi, Henry. Mr. President, you in New York or Washington? No, I'm here. Oh, fine, fine. Part of what irked Nixon was that Kissinger's jet-setting diplomacy had still not delivered peace in Vietnam. In December 1972, with the election won, Nixon reverted to hardball once again to finally clinch the deal. He unleashed 12 days of savage bombing, forcing the North Vietnamese into some final concessions, and an agreement was signed. North Vietnam acknowledged South Vietnam's right to exist, at least for the moment. Nixon had extricated America from the mess and got the boys home. The president, it seemed, was starting his second term with a clean slate and could look ahead to expanding his China strategy and building on superpower detente. There was just one minor difficulty for Nixon. The trial in a Washington court of some rather unusual burglars. In June 1972, five men had been arrested trying to bug the offices of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate apartment complex. The White House denied all knowledge and insisted that the break-in was the work of a few out-of-control political mavericks. Nixon himself claimed... What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur, because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Wise words. If only Nixon had heeded them. Watergate wasn't a marginal event on the fringe of the Nixon presidency. It was a product of the hardball, paranoid politics that had got Tricky Dicky to the top and would now bring him down. Nixon probably didn't know about Watergate in advance, 
but he had sanctioned break-ins and wiretaps of opponents through his notorious plumbers. He had fostered the climate of illegality that led to Watergate. Nixon's siege mentality assumed that they were all out to get him. The Democrats, the press, the liberal establishment. Earlier in his presidency, he'd made a comment to Kissinger and some aides that was frighteningly revealing. One day, we will get them. We'll get them on the ground where we want them. And we'll stick our heels in, step on them hard and twist, right? Henry knows what I mean. Get them on the floor and step on them. Crush them. Show no mercy. Following the Watergate arrests, Nixon was right at the centre of a cover-up, which he delegated to the White House law officer, John Dean. In June 1972, on the pretext of national security, Nixon told aides to order the FBI. But after the election, in 1973, Congress appointed a special Senate committee to inquire into Watergate. The burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. The burglars and their immediate bosses were prosecuted. The press followed up every lead, delighted to get back at the president. The hatred was mutual. The pressure was really getting to Nixon. His hands were shaking. His breath smelt of liquor. The den was becoming a bunker. It was like May 1970 all over again, but this time there was no way back. His presidency and his personality began to fall apart. Nixon told Haldeman, You know, Bob, there's something I've never told anybody before, not even you. Every night since I've been president, I have knelt down on my knees beside my bed and prayed to God for guidance and help in this job. Last night, I knelt down and this time, I prayed that I wouldn't wake up in the morning. I just couldn't face going on. Nixon was prone to melodrama and self-pity. But even so, these words probably came from the heart. The most powerful man in the world, custodian of the nuclear codes that could exterminate millions, could not stop the wheels of justice and democracy, gradually grinding him down. Yet the scandal dragged on for another 15 months because Nixon, a fighter all his life, would not give up. It is my constitutional responsibility to defend the integrity of this great office against false charges. Ironically, though, he sealed his own fate because this most secretive of presidents had documented his own crimes through his tapes. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. We're being blackmailed. I would say these people are going to cost a uh, million dollars over the next uh, few years. Throughout 1973, Nixon kept battling on two fronts, still aching to leave his own footprints on the sands of time. He invited Brezhnev to Washington, hoping to keep up the momentum of his great diplomatic project, 
detente. But he was also fending off efforts by the Senate inquiry to subpoena his tapes. Watergate was now not only sapping his energy and health, but also undermining his political credibility. After re-election, he'd hoped to dispense with Kissinger, jealous of his cult status. Instead, the discredited president found he needed his respected national security advisor as never before, even appointing him secretary of state as well. From now on, it was almost a co-presidency, no more so than in late October 1973 at the height of the Arab-Israeli Yom Kippur War. The crisis escalated into a major face-off between the superpowers. US forces were put on DEFCON 3, the highest level of defence readiness short of imminent attack. Yet the decision was taken not by the president, but by Kissinger. Nixon was asleep, and Kissinger took the decision not to wake him. Chief of Staff Al Haig asked if Kissinger had talked to the president. No, I haven't, Kissinger replied. He'd just start charging around. I don't think we should bother the president. Whether Nixon was exhausted or drunk is unclear. To save himself, the president had had to sacrifice most of the key aides who'd been at his side since the beginning. Haldeman and Ehrlichman had been forced out. And he was losing all authority, constantly harried in press conferences about the tapes, the cover-up, and even his personal finances. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Now the Lone Ranger really was alone. Forced to release the self-incriminatory tapes and facing imminent impeachment, Nixon finally resigned in August 1974. He told staff in a tearful, rambling farewell. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. The ultimate irony was that hate had become the adrenaline of the Nixon presidency. The ambition and ruthlessness that had driven Nixon to the top had spiralled into a consuming rage and mistrust of others that had indeed destroyed him. Nixon, I think, never really came to terms with himself, with his unstable mixture of ability, shyness and suspicion. The presidency of the United States is an unforgiving role. Nixon wasn't the first president, nor will he be the last to end his tenure compromised and discredited. The relentless pressures of office drill down to the vulnerable heart of the incumbent and expose it to the media's remorseless gaze. Since Nixon, the political strip show has continued. Carter, honorable but hapless. Reagan, amiable but out of it. Clinton, a presidency unzipped. Bush Jr., a presidency in terror. And Obama, great expectations that couldn't be delivered. But Nixon stands as an exceptional case. Watergate wasn't a strange aberration. It was symptomatic of the back-channel backstabbing methods by which Nixon's whole presidency operated. Methods that generated his international triumphs as much as his domestic scandals. Here was a presidency of the paranoid, 
And ultimately, it was this very paranoia that sank him in the form of his obsessively recorded tapes. They're going to ask, but what about this son of a bitch? Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our podcast, Nixon in the Den. Tune in next week when we're back to our regularly scheduled programming, exploring the life of Joseph Stalin. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.